welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. This episode is the second of the three-part miniseries we're provisionally calling Where's My Hoverboard? The Future of EdTech and Education. Uh, I'm Mike, I'm a guy with a microphone and imposter syndrome incarnate, and joining me today we have... Lisa, you go first. Okay. It's <laughs> an awkward pause. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, my name is I'm Liz. Uh, I'm a senior product development manager at the Open University, and I am all about the future of education technology. Oh, <laughs> I was just about to say it, and I am the one they call Mark Childs, but that's because I've been listening to a lot of The Shadow recently, and that's how he introduces himself. <laughs> <laughs> In this episode, uh, we've each bought an educational future that wasn't, uh, and a prediction for an educational future that will be. Uh, but wait just a gosh darn minute, because we're not mad shamans or soothsayers here to apply these principles without qualification. Uh, no, no, no. So we are going to be playing the well-known game Precog and Postcog, Minority Report or Majority Thought, which is loosely based on Minority Report, the 2002 uh, movie. Uh, and 1956 book by Philip K. Dick. Um, Novella. I yeah, say. which is... Both Mike and I have been out-nerded right from the way <laughs> first off. It's like, okay, we have we have to check our geek credentials in at the door now because Liz is here. <laughs> yeah, my nerd masculation has been... <laughs> For those who aren't familiar with Minority Report, uh, it was, uh, well, most of the people will be familiar with it from the movie, which had Tom Cruise in and was pretty decent. uh, And it had a special police force who uh, apprehended mad criminals based on future predictions from a group of mutants called precogs Mm. uh, who could predict the future. I'm not sure if this is the novella (laughs) or the film, but... From what I remember, a minority report is is when, okay, so you get the precogs come up with a prediction of the future, and then you then change what you do because of that prediction, and then the minority report is the prediction of what happens when you do that. There's always, so if you're having a conversation with sort of people who are, whatever you want to call them, futurists or whatever, and they're all saying, oh, there's this thing and this thing and this thing, there's always one person who is able to just extrapolate that just one little bit further and kind of see five years down the line, whereas everybody else is sort of seeing three years down the line. It's always interesting where you've got that, just that little extra leap that's happening. And sometimes that little extra Mm. leap is happening because you're extrapolating correctly or incorrectly from the next thing that's going to happen. And that's the, um, I think that's the the premise of the movie is that um, of the, I think it's like three precogs. Three precogs. One of them is a super good precog. I think her name is Agatha. Yes. I'm really stretching my, my memory here. Um, and basically, they all reckon that Tom Cruise done a murder, but she's such a good precog that she actually knows that he didn't done a murder. But hers is the minority report that's sort of filed ahead, and it's because of him being notified of doing the murder that stops him doing the murder. Um, but obviously, the state tries to hush it up because they don't want people questioning the system that's supposed to be perfect. And, oh, it's it's a good film. Well, yeah, it is, yeah. And, of course, the thing that's really entertaining about that film as well is, is that it's because everything is based around this particular system, everything else around it is also all technology based. So you've got all of this kind of like retinal stuff going on. And this is the film specifically, mm. all of like this retinal scanning and barcoding and all the rest of it and everything being hyper tracked and hyper aware and, um, and everything. And of course uh, he has to go, Tom Cruise's characters to go to great lengths in order to not be found because of this entire system. Oh, I forgot about built. that actually a flawed system and so this whole kind of super system that's been built around it and then of course it becomes a lot harder to dismantle the thing that is not actually ideal which is oh, I forgot about the bit with the eyes oh the bit with Ew. the eyes oh. the bit with the eyes and then the bit with the rotten sandwich and the sour milk and the oh ah. oh god yeah Sorry, Mark, you wanted to... Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, because Spielberg used, this, used it as an opportunity to just get together a bunch of futurologists or whatever and sort of bring together all their predictions about what a future world might be. So there's just driverless cars and all those sorts of things all piled in yeah. there as kind of background to what's going on. Yeah. Well, they got loads right in this. They got driverless cars. They got personalised um, ads, like individual personalised ads, voice-controlled homes, facial and optical recognition, Gesture-based computing. I, I just feel like everybody's like every time the Kinect came out or VR, they're like, "Oh my god, it's like Minority Report." And predictive policing, which I don't think they actually kind of predicted because they've been doing predictive policing since the fifties. It's that principle of some things 
change in a predictable way it's like well we're doing this now so all we have to do is stick that on it and it becomes this next thing so i don't think there's i think that's one of the reasons why all of that has, has already come to pass a lot of that was because none of them were really massive leaps they were all that basic principle of you know this is the next obvious thing really because this is how things are changing So we have our seven principles of predicting the future that we had last episode, and we are now going to pull in our things that should have been the future of education and then weren't, uh, and then ask ourselves, could we have seen this coming based on any of the principles and have a little chat around them? So who would like to go first? Mine is adaptive learning. And so now, as I understand adaptive learning, it flows out of the idea around personalized learning or even what some people have called hyper-personalized learning. Adaptive learning was very much um, summarized in a company called Newton, that's K-N-E-W-T-O-N, in the last sort of maybe three or four years. That company eventually was sold for a song to Wiley Education because it was a complete trash fire. It, re- it really was. It was a case of just <laughs> massively overselling ad- a- a- what adaptive learning means. The premise of it is that they are able to not just predict what the student knows, but also what the student is then able to do. And then magically, you're going to adapt the learning for them and be able to change it before their very eyes. People have described it as adaptive learning as very much black box, so that they're saying magic is happening, but they won't tell you how it's happening. And very often that was because it was bon- it was bollocks. It was just kind of very straightforwardly, very straightforwardly. What it often is, is simply hyper, hyper assessment. They give a student something, they test them on it, and then they provide you with the next thing, the student with the next thing. And essentially, it's like decision tree after decision tree after decision tree after decision tree. And in what universe is that pedagogy? It almost sounds like the precog stuff from uh, Minority Report, doesn't it? It's like if they're making a prediction about what a student's going to be able to learn based on a whole set of nuances, then it sounds it sounds like flaky stuff. It is flaky, and it's flaky from the outset. Because the thing is, it's like at its core, there's always some good stuff like coming out of it. So it's it's in t- sort of initial good stuff. So the first sort of thinking about machine learning, the first sort of thinking about AI in education, really thinking about how you might be able to apply that to learning and apply that to teaching. And that's really important stuff. But I found adaptive learning offensive in a way because of the arrogance behind it. (laughs) Um, And that's probably why I'm also slightly, it just really pissed me off like proper tech bro, douche bro stuff, you know? It's the sort of thing where somebody goes, which always pisses me off about educational technology, which is that, oh, I know, let's do, we'll wrap this up and then we'll sell it. We'll make mega bucks and then the underpants gnomes are back. You know, it's just crap. Yes. Well, it's just like every time somebody hits one of these sorts of problems, somebody in the room inevitably goes, oh, it's fine. We'll use big data and AI to solve it. And you go, how? There's a great book, um, Invisible Data. That's the book, um, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, it came out last year, the year before. And it talks a lot about it. Basically, the whole book is about how heavily gendered data is. And the extrapolations that we make about data means that we are profoundly skewing the world around us. So you're physically interpreting what's gendered data, which just reinforces the problem. It's, it's really interesting stuff. They've given all these case studies, which is like, why does Apple produce phones that are too big for women? Too to big for women's hands. Average? Yeah. That's the worry is that if you are using technology in this way to make predictions about human behavior, then it's who owns the data, where they gather the data from. And it's not just in an objective, neutral way. There's always something behind it. And then that is what can drive a disparity in how it gets used. It's one of those things that, you know, where you kind of, you, you're aware of something and then somebody just lays it out in such a great way where you kind of then look around and go, God, you know, every day you're witnessing something like that. And I guess you don't think of the patriarchy sometimes having 3D qualities and they're right there staring you in the face or possibly sometimes you're holding it in your hands. How, how does it happen? So I was just thinking, with, with regards to adaptive learning, did this fail because of the patriarchy? Um, well, I mean, this is, I mean, this is now starting to head into wild extrapolation territory. 
now, but perfect. <laughs> the idea is, is that you are mining data. So you're mining the students' data in order to then push out the next piece of learning that they need or whatever. You can see that at a like at, at the, the most basic level, course recommending. Like you did this thing, you should do this thing. Okay, that's fine. Or you okay. opted into this thing, you should do these three things as a result. And and that's that kind of where adaptive and personalized are very linked. And if you think about these massive data sets are around about us and you've got people who are people who are often men building the machines, the questions, asking the questions, interrogating that data, who are interrogating that data from a particular bias and are then analyzing that data with a particular bias, I would say yes, adaptive learning was killed by the the patriarchy, doomed it. Damn. Okay, so of our seven principles. I think I think it's a combination of things happening in the same largely predictable ways and cultural shifts happening slowly. So things develop yeah. things developing in the same largely predictable ways. For me, adaptive learning and definitely the way adaptive learning was pitched is what for me is a perennial issue with educational technology is that all you need is one thing and it'll solve some unarticulated problem that everybody is having. And then if well, everything will be just rosy and fine. And the thing with adaptive learning is, is that, as with a lot of technology, is that it doesn't appreciate that learning is hard and that learning is complicated and complex. And it is those things on purpose. That's why we are who we are and what we do, what we do, is because learning is messy. And technology doesn't always allow for that messiness. And data, for instance, which something like adaptive learning and prediction and personalized learning is very much based on, data doesn't give you the context of the messiness. If you think about data simply, for instance, how a student is doing, I mean, we've had this conversation quite recently with some research we've been doing about how students behave, which is that so we're looking at, so you can look at student success and say this student is getting 40%. By some argument, in terms of data, that is actually not a good, that's not good. That student is not being successful. For that student who is possibly doing this for the third time or is this is their first time studying on a long time or actually they've never done this subject before, for them, they're thinking 40% is absolutely fucking amazing. I am a hero until somebody tells them that it's not good enough. And that's the thing is, is 40% is just one piece of data, but it doesn't give you the context and the messiness around it. And for me, something like adaptive learning, the reason it fails so badly is that arrogance of thinking that you can use data to try and lasso everything together. And then yeah, so it's kind of inherently out. mechanistic, isn't it? It is. It's very mechanistic. Mark, what's your thoughts? I mean, that's really interesting, that thing about that it's eliminating the messiness or it's not acknowledging the messiness. And I think that... Not appreciating it. Yeah, or not even, yes, not appreciating it, not being aware of it, not valuing it. It's like, well, I, I mean, if, we, if we're going to be very precise about the meaning of the word patriarchy, it's the, the archi bit is authority. So it's yeah. basically that it's an authority that's mainly run by males. So a woman can be a member of the patriarchy if they're in a position of power. And a man is not a member of the patriarchy if they don't have a position of power. That's the strict definition of the word. So if we're looking at patriarchal order if we look at the men who are running things or the people who are running things in a male-dominated society it's not men in general that are running things it's men who are powerful and successful they're the ones making the decisions and they're the ones that tend to as far as i can see like regimented things are very locked down ideas of what success means unique ideas of what it means to be a good student and what good learning is because they are members of the patriarchy because that's set up for making those sorts of people succeed. So you have a self-fulfilling prophecy there that powerful people, mainly men, sometimes women, are in charge in a patriarchy. They're the ones who get to make the decisions and they're the ones who get to influence what is good data and what is bad data, what is good learning, what is bad learning. And so therefore, if you're putting them in charge of what you should learn next, it's about these regimented little boxes that make people successful things and make them entrepreneurs or make them all these sorts of things. 
And I'm not saying it's bad to be an entrepreneur. What I'm bad when I'm saying it's bad you is are, you're, to assume, by doing that you're then perpetuating. You're then perpetuating something. Yes. You're basically creating in your own image or creating from your own in your own likeness. You're then perpetuating that inside, which is that kind of where it's sort of these things, sort of cultural shifts happening slowly. For instance, these this is why these things are so slow because we tend to perpetuate in our own image. Um, the same things have become yeah. successful, the same thing. And then you start to get things that are trying to hop onto that bandwagon. And once you get things that are hopping onto a bandwagon and not making so much money and things like that, you can start to see that it's starting to dissipate a little bit. And then that means that it's the end of that particular cycle. I, I would agree with all of the above, but also possibly pull in the principle of people like physical things just because it does sort of sound like it's trying to automate teaching. Mm. Um, and minimize kind of the human aspect of it. But it sounds like we have majority thoughts on why adaptive learning uh, was not the future of EdTech. So, um, Mark, would you like to go next? I was going to pick Second Life. Oh, I'm glad I didn't choose Second Life then, because that was on my list. (laughs) (laughs) I am so surprised that you chose Second Life. Only because so much of my career was, and my academic career was so closely connected, and my personal life was so closely connected with it. And I made the prediction that it would, and I was so much of a group of people that thought it was going to change education. This was just an, an instinctive warming to it as a technology that was fun, it was creative, it connected people in a way they hadn't been connected before. Everybody I knew who was in there were in there because they'd done it once and they thought, oh my God, this is amazing. We have to do more of this and we have to get more people in. What Second Life is, is it's a virtual world. It's like, I mean, we all know virtual worlds because we play gaming virtual worlds. It's a massive multiplayer online role-play game, really, except there's no gaming elements. It's going in there to socialize, to create things. Everybody has builder rights, so you can build things. You can change your avatar. You can create bars and hang out in bars and, and just dance while your avatar dances and all that sort of stuff. It's, there's no quests. It's, this is what, it's like life. It's like there's no, there's no rules and there's no points. It's all about just getting into a shared virtual world and doing stuff with other people, really building communities and that sort of thing. And um, it started, I mean, it's, there have been virtual worlds going on since 1986. And there was a huge sort of swathe of them in the 90s, which kind of petered out. And then around 2003, Linden Labs, who created Second Life, it became live, it left beta in 2005. And so everybody got on board. By 2010, every higher education institution in the UK had a presence in Second Life to some extent. It was that big. Everybody was, every institution was in there. And so people like Gartner of the Gartner hype cycle were predicting things like by 2011, three quarters of 80% of people who have an online connection will have an avatar in a virtual world. And of course, actually by 2010 was actually the peak. I think there were 1.4 million users in 2010, and now it's something like 600,000. But even though that still sounds like a lot, it, I get the impression when I go in there that it's it's below that critical threshold of maintaining that sense of community, maintaining that sense of activity. Yes, there are occasional things happen within there, like a, an annual conference, but you can wander in there and and things have just disappeared and it hasn't had that kind of impact that people expected it would. Yeah, why do you think it didn't um, It didn't pan out? I think one of the reasons was FAF. We, what we did, we did a lot of research in how you get to use it. And one of the things that we clarified beyond all question was there is a value to taking some of your learning activities within that virtual world because most learners will learn that thing more effectively. It will be more creative. There's things you can explore like digital identity, digital society in that space way more effectively than you can can anywhere else. You can do virtual field trips and there is learning that you can do there that is way more effective than you can do with just sitting in a classroom or doing books. That's not the question. The question is... Is it worth it? And is it worth things like the amount of time it takes people to become familiar with that space? Is it worth the, the tooling up of all of the kit? I would go into 
IT suites, and I would be assured by the IT technician, oh, yeah, we've got state-of-the-art <laughs> stuff. You won't have a problem. And I will go in there and then find that nothing runs because they don't have graphics cards. And it's like, well, how can this be state-of-the-art if you don't have a graphics card in your machine? I remember this was sort of 20, 10 years ago, so stuff wasn't most laptops, most you know 400 quid laptops will run Second Life now, but back then stuff wouldn't. And so it would be the you'd have to download, you'd get in there and there'd be an up, upgrade and you would have to upgrade the software and that would take the first half hour of the session. And, you know, if you were just going in there to do a one and a half hour tour around, I don't know, the, the theatre of Epidavros, which is what I used to do, uh, but you also had then, first of all, have to spend an hour training your students up to move their avatars around and teleport and do all that sort of stuff and get over the fact that they can take magic mushrooms or whatever and play about with it or whatever. Yeah, ignore all the furries having sex in the corner sort of thing. Yeah, and that occasionally you would actually be, somebody would teleport in and start. I mean, I was doing one session, which was, um, it was the, the North American Oceanic whatever, and I was showing them tsunamis, and there was a great tsunami simulation. So I was showing all the students, this it was disaster management students, this tsunami demonstration. This is what it's like standing in front of a tsunami and all that sort of stuff. And then this guy teleported in and started doing a naked belly dance in front of my students. <laughs> so you'd have stuff like that. Um, but that that wasn't a problem. That's just fun. And those sorts of, you know, fun things don't get in the way. But what did get in the way was this, you know, you'd have to have an extra hour to teach the students how to use it before you could then do your hour showing them the thing you wanted to show them. And that's an hour you can't usually afford. So there was those sort of that technological overhead, that faff. And then also the other problem was that the technology wasn't robust enough to be reliable so the last time I taught in there the grid just crashed I couldn't show the students what I wanted to do we couldn't all log in at the same time because the thing the technology didn't support it and that was the point which was about 2014 I think where I thought you know what this is too much like hard work I'm not going to do it I, I would add a little addendum to the law of faff, really, mm-hmm. because the law of faff is also just like, oh my god, that's just like that's just like too much hard work, which I totally, I totally uh, get. But there is also the part of the faff is the suspension of disbelief, where you actually have to mm-hmm. get people over the hump of can I be asked? Yeah. Not because it's a hard work mentally. Is this really going to give me anything? worth it is this going to be value for my time or value for money or or whatever so that's the thing i think with faf is is that there's also kind of like having to make that judgment call of can can i be asked not just to learn this but can i be asked to care about this thing and why should i care about this thing Mm. the part of the hype cycle problem that does seem to so often fit the way these things are is that everybody goes in there everybody just gets everybody who did get blown away by it got blown away by it that's slightly tautological but that's what happened was a group of people went in there thought this is amazing we should do this because this will change people's experiences before you got to the point where you actually knew what it was good for yeah, and so therefore a, but that have, tracks exactly sorry that tracks exactly with the hype cycle and MOOCs where it was all massively yes, yeah. like woohoo this is going to be amazing before anybody actually had any clue what it was what the point was and video conferencing and, yeah. and everything. And, and that is why we get this uh, peak of, ex, of, uh, of whatever it is, the heightened expectations. Yes, because yeah. people are just immediately blown away by what the technology is. And then the people make these missteps because they get in there thinking it will do this and it doesn't do that. And it's harder than people They're looking think. for the one ring. Yeah, yeah. They're looking for the thing that's going to rule everything else. And it, it's not. And then by the time they all, everybody's in there and got fed up with it, then all of the research has gone on going, well, actually, there's this that you can do, that you can that, you can do that. There's a so- like I said, there's a solid body of evidence for why it is the best environment for doing the, so- those sorts of particular activities. There's, it's uncontrovertibly better than a lot of other technologies for doing that sort of thing. But by the time that message was getting across, everybody else had got in there and going, oh, this is a bit of a, this is a bit stupid. Look at all these fairies having a shag. Fairies? Furries, sorry. Look at all these furries yeah, having a pro- There's probably fairies having a shag in there as yeah, well. Yeah, fewer fairies than there were furries. Um, but yeah, look, look at all these furries. 
you know, you get the stories of adultery, you get the stories of pornography and all those sorts of things. So you get a huge media backlash. You get a quite justifiable backlash from people who have tried it for the wrong reasons and thought this doesn't work. This isn't this isn't the panacea that everybody said it was going to be. But by the time everybody else who's been doing it has got to the point where they understand what it's good for and have this message, message they want to get across on that slope of enlightenment or whatever it is, they can't because everybody else is in this slough of disillusionment and yeah. it's like, well, this was a waste of time. Uh, mm. But also there's the, the fact that the tech doesn't really live up to what it could have done anyway. There's another issue as well, which is that I've recently rediscovered an, an insult that I think is one that I want to float amongst Pedagodzilla listeners, which is a Gwenlin. Have you ever heard of a Gwenlin? No. Uh, you probably have, but it's easy to slip by it. Um, a Gwenlin is somebody maybe extremely competent when it comes to bog standard ordinary day-to-day down-to-earth stuff but they completely miss the point when it comes to anything that's more fantastic more science fictiony something that's less mundane a so muggle. what we found was that a lot a muggle is another word i was going to say mu- a hufflepuff um, uh, uh, <laughs> oh no it's a muggle or it's a mundane a Gwenlin is named after Gareth Gwenlin, who was the uh, BBC head of comedy who rejected Red Dwarf because there wasn't, <laughs> because, there wasn't because there wasn't a sofa. Oh, people, that... won't relate, people won't relate to this because there's no sofa in it. And this is the problem is you would get all these people in head of IT or whatever, and there was always problems with IT people locking it down and closing off the firewall because they were paranoid and it wouldn't have done anything to open up the firewall, but they just don't like their firewalls open. And all these sort of heads of whatever, heads of curriculum, who were all Gwenlins, who were going the virtual world equivalent of, well, there's no sofa. You would show them a replica of their campus and they go, oh, my God, this is amazing. Yes, this is brilliant. We can show people what the campus looks like and we can have our students sitting in a lecture theatre and it's like, well, no, you don't. That's exactly the point is to not have them sit in a lecture theatre in a virtual world. What's the point of that? You, and the, so that's it. It's the Gwenlins are running things. And they're the ones saying, there's no sofa. We can't use this for, for this. This isn't going to be funny. Or, you know, there's no lecture room. We can't use this for teaching. And that was How can the they be learning the if they're not sitting in such in, on, on chairs in a virtual, uh, in a virtual lecture theatre? Yeah. How will we know that they're there yeah. and how will we know that they're learning unless we can see them at all times and watch them? Yeah. I wonder if it does sort of flag up a wider cultural consideration with it, though, because back in, what was it, 2009? Mm-hmm. So I've got a graph here um, on just the increase in active video gamers worldwide. Uh, and this is just from 2014 to 2021. But in 2014, uh, we had 1,815 million um, active gamers. In 2020, it reckons we've got 2,600 million. And looking back at some other graphs, it looks like it's kind of been scaling that whole time. And I wonder if just because, you know, you're saying that tech barrier and that faff barrier, it was just maybe a little bit before its time with regards to kind of its ability to be easily engaged with by a wider audience. Because let's let's be fair, if Second Life was an app now that you could just download on your phone and jump straight into. Yeah, I mean, Minecraft, Minecraft took off in a big way, and that was a lot simpler to do. You could still build stuff, and there were still things going on. Somebody's building the library at the OU in Minecraft, Minecraft. at the it moment. It looks amazing, yeah. It does. Yeah. They're 3D printing it as well. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> so I think maybe with VR, it might make a comeback, because particularly when VR gets to a point where you can just pick it up, stick it on, and therefore, and you will feel immersed immediately. But, I mean, I've been into a lot of VR stuff recently, and they're replicating lecture theatres. <laughs> so it's like, okay, this is – you've completely missed the point again. <laughs> <laughs> Have you not learned from the Second Life experience? But, you know, maybe we'll fast-track past the, the Gwenlin phase because of our experiences from Second Life. I don't know. I think, I think that, that just shows, again, just the cultural shift just hasn't quite occurred yet. The text there, but people's brains haven't quite caught up yet. Yeah. As an aside on the Gwendolyn thing, I've literally only just started watching Red Wolf. We're using lockdown to re-educate. What? I know. We're using lockdown to re-educate me. But I grew up in a different culture, can I just say. Red Wolf is not a thing. And um, and so I'm about three or four episodes into the very first season. So I've, uh, I'm, uh, I'm brand new on the Red Wolf thing. <laughs> 
Yeah, so the the, okay. the Gwenlin thing is it crops up. So listen out for it at the beginning of season two. That's where they start using it as a as a term of abuse. I really, yeah. I really like that. I really like it as a Gwenlin being a person, a person who is a barrier to entry, or also yeah. a Gwenlin being as a falling down into a Gwenlin kind of space or a Gwenlin kind of thing where it actually prevents others from going into that space as well. So, hmm. also sounds like a Gaelic beast. <laughs> Also, the thing about Gareth Gwenlin was that actually he was a really good director of comedy on everything else. He was the one that um, he was the one that started off Only Fools and Horses. There were a couple of other really good ones, uh, The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin. I mean, some I love, really good that. comedies that he that he spotted, and he just had this blind spot when it came to something that wasn't down to earth, that wasn't mundane or mugglish. And that's that's the problem with Gwenlands is that they are, on the whole, very competent people, very very uh, uh, accomplished people, but just cannot get their heads around something that is slightly fantastic or slightly out of the ordinary. Like it's trying that. to make that leap, isn't it? Trying to make that leap mm. that that to kind of go actually this could be something interesting here. And then making that leap. We work with a lot of Gwenlands. There's a lot of Gwenlands in higher education. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, Mark, can you very quickly summarise for us which of the principles you think applies to why Second Life was not the future of EdTech or has not yet been the future of EdTech? It's the faff was the big thing. It's the cycles thing that it's hit the Gartner hype cycle, absolutely mapped against it completely. So I think what we should have been able to do was think of here's the hype cycle. We are now hyping this and we should therefore expect a big dip and also that the until people have done it and have got a really good idea of the value of it, they don't recognize all they see at the front end is the FAF before they get any payoff. And it's that FAF to payoff ratio just didn't pay off. And Liz? Yes, I definitely think law of FAF uh, accounts, accounts for that because I am afraid I fall into the realm of people who tried Second Life and on my own, not as part of a group. And kind of did go, and I've been. You know, I'm a. I, I play games, and I enjoy. I very much enjoy um, online gaming and things like that. And I, I definitely felt like I was like. And the point is, and for mm. me, I feel I fall squarely into the law of faff one on that one. And for me, I think that some things always stay the same because Second Life was weird. <laughs> That's <laughs> so weird. It was basically four chan given form, <laughs> therefore, just weird and strange and I, I did the exact same thing Liz where I installed it and then I think I was on it for less than 10 minutes and then promptly scrubbed it and that was from the days where installing a game was a real commitment of time <laughs> uh, downloading and installing a game and even then it's it made nary a mark on my hard drive sounds like majority thought once again cool well hopefully we'll all have a massive falling out over the next one Finally, mine, my thing for what uh, should have been the future of EdTech, or what everybody thought was going to be the future of EdTech, and then wasn't. It's a stinker. It's iTunes U. That's right. Poor old iTunes U. It's been taken. It's it was a wheezing, drooling old thing that's been taken around the back of the barn with a 12 gauge. So iTunes U was a really, really great idea to start with. So it's uh, launched back in 2007. And it allowed universities slash educational institutions to syndicate um, their AV through iTunes platform. And this was a really big, cool thing because iTunes was kind of the go-to place for people for music. It had and was actively reshaping the music industry around it. Um, it was also the first platform that really um, tried to do centralizing of podcasts. So podcasts until that point have been a really disparate bunch of kind of stuff scattered over the internet. And I think it's kind of basically before podcasts were really podcasts and it pulled them all into one place to syndicate them, which was amazing. And even better, like huge universities like all the world over got behind it and filled it with content. And um, there were some American universities saying that they had literally millions of subscribers. There were millions of hours of uh, lectures, uh, both audio and video of uh, some very high quality, some less so uploaded. It was really cool. Uh, the New Scientist published an article back in 2009 with the title iTunes University is better than the real thing. So yeah, it was it was huge. Everybody was loving it. I mean when I started with the Open University in 2014, I was still putting stuff up onto iTunes U. And I mean Liz, you've got some you've got some background with iTunes U. Oh, Do you want to hop in here? Personal, personal. 
when I first started at the university, at the Open University, I was part of the team, along with um, some of my colleagues. We're still working together. Um, part of the team who was asked to um, put content up onto iTunes U. There was already a, a strong effort to put open content out onto iTunes U at that point. So all of the content that was being pushed onto Open Learn um, was being syndicated out onto out onto iTunes U. But when we were asked by Apple to be part of the launch team for iTunes Course Manager, um, which was actually putting together curated courses using iTunes content and using what we had to try and create these courses and push them out. Um, and we were, uh, it was really quite bonkers. We were literally working in a white, what we called a white room because we had signed NDAs and we weren't allowed to do certain things. We had to do certain things. We were in this lockdown room creating these courses. And uh, some of those courses did actually have up to a million subscribers. It was it was crazy. The courses, they were still up there um, at one point. I think they may still be. Um, we created books and things to go with them. It was a bonkers, bonkers time. It really was. And it's one of those things where it never quite panned out the way you wanted it to. But the innovation team that I'm part of at the OU, we cut our teeth on iTunes and in making ebooks and things for iTunes taught us so much about making ebooks for the for the OU and the kind of alternative formats and stuff like that that we've then carried on doing. We've learned we learned so much about digital learning from from that. A lot of the stuff we take for granted now uh, in how we create content for our students, we learned from iTunes U. And that's the thing. I mean, there were a load of universities putting together a huge amount of bespoke content essentially for it. Um, Same, I think, hours uh, and God, I think hours was... and hours worth. And it was not cheap to do that kind of stuff as well. No, not at all. I mean, the Open University put an absolute shed load of stuff up. Um, so all of the bits and pieces were there really for it to be a, a massive smash hit success that changed how everybody studied. But it didn't so much. Uh, so... It was a part of the iTunes client uh, for best part of a decade and then got spun off into a separate iTunes app along with all the other bits of iTunes when they did the big, uh, the big refresh. They kind of they broke it all down into its constituent components. And then it's just sort of stagnated there. It's, the app hasn't been updated in the last three years. Most of the people who were previously putting content up on it stopped about four years ago yep. and, have, and have shifted their attention to, uh, to platforms greener. What a great topic to choose, actually. It's one of those technologies where I can kind of go, I was there, I was there. And also going, what the hell? We were so we were so all in on it. And it was per- made perfect sense at the time. But one of the biggest failings of course manager and things like that was course the course part of it was almost an attempt to try and draw all of these disparate things together and to almost kind of try and use universities and things to be able to get more people to use more assets and they really were assets because they're all just all over the place and in album form as well because iTunes never lost its um, its music mentality it was always albums and tracks and shit like that but it was also completely completely locked down you really didn't have much it was you were just in a complete walled garden of of apple of appliness and it turned out of course as we now know that it was actually before um, before Steve Jobs died, um, that it was actually all uh, an attempt to try and corner the textbook market. So the idea was we'll create... Oh, Jesus. We'll create, literally, we'll create these courses. You will put content together into these courses. You're including eBooks. Okay, great. So you now you've got eBooks. And now you can make interactive iBooks. Interesting. And we actually did this. We created iBooks and they had like... Inter- they were interactive EPUBs, basically. And you basically put in quizzes and videos and everything. And they were really high spec and stuff like that. And the idea was that then you would be able to sell those as textbooks and students would be able to. Um, we did actually sell quite a few of them through the through through the store. Um, they were still up there as well at one point, as, as, they, as far as I know. And it was this idea, the idea was they would be able to corner the textbook market. And then the textbook market in the US in particular was hugely lucrative incredibly lucrative business that's so wow okay i did not even guess that is so sinister i love it (laughs) (laughs) and actually finding information online on why the platform kind of disintegrated is quite tricky so there's individual universities and individual articles basically saying that they're you know they're stopping it because you know they're they're moving to another platform or they've got their own in-house system or they're using something that's a bit more kind of widely syndicated but it did make me think that if anything we needed an eighth principle which is how does this make money? 
Well, you can't have id tick without that one. That's absolutely bang on. Because um, I think the big thing was that a lot of universities realised they were spending a lot of dosh on this and not getting any anywhere near as much back. And that if anything, Apple was the one benefiting from it all because of all the additional traffic happening through their clients. Yeah, so the additional complexity with iTunes as well is, is that where it veers into open content. And if you think about open... Yeah, open educational resources. Open educational resources. Thank you. OER, there we go. Okay. Thank you, Mark. I've just forgotten yeah. everything. Yes, yeah, so... so um, <laughs> So that this, yeah, so that's the complexity of this as well. It's so open. So um, a lot of the content that we were putting onto iTunes U was open educational resources, and they're obviously open educational resources. They're, it's not just that they're free; it's also around open access and all of the rest of it. There's a whole ethos about OER. I think it's fair to say, and the idea with iTunes U is, is that you would then be able to bring this stuff together, and then also turns out that you could then sell individual items from within a course, for instance. So you could buy a book, for instance. So you would have elements of what we were then call, calling uh, commercial educational resources, CERs and OERs together. You would basically be able to lift out particular pieces of learning and then you would be then be able to monetize those little individual pieces of learning, which in itself now sounds, inc- with, my, with my current head on, sounds incredibly sinister also. And it, it feels icky. It really feels icky now when you think about the fact that you are then thinking about can, are, are people talking about monetizing OER? But then that's a whole other thing about OER and what OER stands for and the kind of inclusivity and, and stuff like that that OER stands for. So, yes, all quite interesting and weird and part of my murky past. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's all a bit bleak, isn't it? <laughs> Mark, what are your thoughts? I wanted to tweak slightly your eighth principle, which is a really valuable one, one we should have done before, which was, it's not about how do you make money, it's how do you fund it, because there are other funding models other than actually making some money from it. So, for instance, uh, you could fund a lot of MOOCs because it's a lost leader, It, you know what I mean, you can justify making them because it brings people to your product. You don't necessarily have to make money from it directly. For instance, in China, MOOCs are big. Because the government are funding them because they want free education for as many people as possible. And so, oh. therefore, that's where they get their money. They're not making money from MOOCs, but they're funding them in alternative ways. And there's, a, there's quite a range of different ways that you can actually fund things without actually having to make money from them. I would push back on that slightly and say it's not either or of those things because you're right. I think how do you fund it? I mean, that's a perennial issue that we have, obviously. How will we, how will we yeah. actually fund this, this idea? But people who are generally not in, for instance, HE, but sitting alongside HE who are thinking, this is a cash cow. I'm absolutely sure that I yeah. can figure out a way to make make money out of this. Whereas, the, and then there's the other side within that is sitting here, but how can I fund this? And then these two things sometimes mix together and then it's either a success or a massive disaster. I'd, I'd happily take both versions of the principle. I'd happily take how do I fund this <laughs> no. and how do I make money on this. It's not just about making money. It's sometimes I think what is frustrating is that it's about making the quick buck. And that's not, I think, obviously what we're into, in it for. And I think that is also, it's so completely fundamentally opposed to what we do in HE and FE as well in any kind of education. Um, making the quick buck because we're in it we're playing a you know we're in it for the the long haul it's about more than that and I think that's why it's so often why these clangers clang is because it's just we just don't it just does not sit right with us there's also a principle it, I've got this from a, it's a cracked article I, I'm spend about half my life reading cracked but it's called why everything is shit or something like that oh I've read that article <laughs> I love that article it's brilliant isn't it and what it I it's basically that it's not enough in a mainly in, in a kind of American, but in, in any kind of Western capitalist business, it's not enough to just make something and continue to make money from it. Like you open up a bakery and you make bread and you make the money from the making the bread and that that's fine. But with a lot of these, particularly dot coms, they've got to constantly expand and change what they do and show growth in order to actually maintain capital coming in from shareholders or whatever. And so, therefore, you have to keep on doing new things and eventually do more and more new things until it starts to get a bit shit. It is kind of, it's one of those articles where you kind of go, oh, late stage capitalism, I understand now. Damn you, capitalism! (laughs) Artificial pressure has a way of pushing us all towards the lowest common denominator. 
Uh, do we have any more thoughts? Um, my, my my thinking is uh, basically rule invisible rule eight. Um, how does it make money slash how do you fund it? Uh, was the major reason for its downfall. Well, is this a, perhaps a nice segue into our last section, yeah. which is a very quick, if you had to better Fiverr, what do you think a future of education might be, slash edtech? Go on then, you start then. <laughs> While iTunes U, which semi-syndicated uh, AV materials across multiple universities, you know, has, has died a death, I think that... At some stage in the future, and definitely not now, but probably within the next 10 years, um, we'll see better use of podcasting to supplement education. Um, I think universities, who a lot of them will cut their teeth on iTunes U um, and have since then been pulling stuff into their own platforms and their own kind of syndication engines. I think there's going to be a greater and greater focus on ways to disseminate them as kind of an accompaniment to this form of education. Obviously, at the moment, there's so many. Um, schools and universities moving online i think a lot of them this will be the kind of an extra piece to that puzzle it boot up the arse to kind of put the two pieces together and um yeah maybe start thinking about ways that they can supplement education with lectures and av content and things like that just you know in smarter more joined up ways that work better for them that's my that's my prediction ah. and you know and the demographic and the technology is there now as well which is better can I go next? Because I've got something that might lead in nicely from that. Yeah, and I've, I've said, is... so you carry on, go. Oh, okay. So uh, I was going to suggest intelligent teaching assistance. So one of the things that we were looking at, and I'm slightly more doubting this after Liz's thing about adaptive, adaptive technology. You're welcome. <laughs> I think, yes, there are, there are problems. And this is, this is what, in my notes, it was like, yes, but who gets to decide this sort of stuff? But I think if we're looking at, intelligent teaching assistants not making the final decisions for students but actually being the ai little thing that sits out there supporting some of the things that teachers want to do so teachers are still in control but you only have these ais as teaching assistants so for instance field some of the more basic questions so you'd have a chat bot so that that would help support the students with some of the more routine inquiries and also a lot one of the issues that i find with online mentoring is that there's a comment here there's a comment there in the students, there's discussion boards that are going all over the place. The ITA could flag that. So again, it's not making the choices about the learning. It's about making the connections between students and facilitating some of that. The students could still make their own connections. It's just about making some of those things a bit more obvious. So just having that kind of AI supporting people, taking a lot of the brunt work out of those sorts of communications, that sort of weaving, but still not particularly um, even more so after Liz's comments earlier, (laughs) but not actually being in charge of where the learning's going. I think it's one of those things that's interesting because we already have the precursors in place. So things like chatbots and Mm. stuff like that are already kind of in place. And then you start to think about how that could mix in with things like virtual assistants and things like that, the digital assistants and stuff like that. So it's a really interesting idea. And yes, I think it's what's in the algorithm, who builds it and how they're interpreting the world and how what are you going to have returned to you the same world that you're trying to put out. So that is a really mm. it's a really interesting concept and one that could be inherently flawed. I I tell you what, I think it's probably closer than you think. I mean if you if you had a, a chatbot that did first waves first line student support, then you'd have this basically. And if you start plugging in like FAQ stuff and then module specific stuff, then but already, I mean, yeah, that's I mean, crap. That's already some of that stuff already exists. Okay, and Liz. Um, so I am. This is a part where, so if I um, I'm going to say it, and um, everybody who knows me is going to be like, oh God, Liz, not again. But I'm still putting my fiver on it, which is um, I I would have hoped somewhere in the last three or four years that a better term would have come up, but I'm going to call it it's next generation digital learning environments. It is really that idea of the interaction between digital learning in the form of spaces and platforms and places and a student being an an active author within that space and an active contributor within that space. So it's about that kind of um, co-creation and co-production. It's not about a single platform or a single technology, but instead a very complex interweaving of different types of things. So different services, different APIs, different um, different things that you are then weaving together to create a, a digital space. One of my absolute favorite 
YouTube videos of the last five years. So this was actually no longer the God. This was 2013, so that's seven years ago. Is um, by Dan uh, Dan Waity, who's the CEO of um, Hypothesis, which is an open annotation app and allows you to annotate on the web. It's actually really good. It's it's got some really good solid uh, stuff to it and allows you to do quite a lot. And in his in this podcast, he talks very much about how in the infancy of the internet we had a choice of which way to go. It was either lockdown or it would be open, about open annotation where you would be able to ah, lock down and instead it went lockdown. And it's one of those things where something like that has given rise to an assimilative internet where we are able to create content we don't actually create together. And I think for me, that for me is where I want to put my fiver. Martin Weller talks about blurred boundaries in personal learning environments and VLEs and things like that. And I'm all about that blurred boundary. The messier, the better. Yeah, no, the podcast is um, the podcast itself is uh, Dan Waity do Dan Whaley, sorry, doing um, a, a keynote at, at Personal Democracy Forum in 2013, and uh, the video is called "The Revolution Will Be Annotated." <laughs> and I really, I learned so. I, so what's it's, the, it's a brilliant video. So it's kind of like a digital anarchy. Then what's the kind of what's the big cool benefit, or is it just this is where you think I mean, things are going? I, that kind well, of? I think. We have what we need to build that, uh, or to build it into allow it into fruition. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we have the we have the building blocks. But for me, the thing with next generation digital learning environments and everything that kind of goes with that is is that it's not just about technology; it's about understanding how people behave and how we teach and how we learn, and trying to use technology to augment that rather than replace it. And for me, I think that's the role of ed tech it's about augmenting it's never about replacing education and people-to-people interaction okay so let's do a quick roundup okay so we had adaptive learning uh liz why did adaptive learning fail as audrey waters said adaptive learning was just basically snake oil (laughs) oh my god audrey waters yes we need to put audrey waters link in the thing in the show notes um, Mark, we had Second Life. Why was Second Life not the future of education? Too much faff, too many Gwenlands, not enough furries. <laughs> <laughs> and we had iTunes U, which was not the future of education because it wasn't quite its time yet and it was a bit unclear how you were going to get money out of it. <laughs> and then we looked forwards at what we thought the future of education was going to be. I thought it was going to be predictably for me, podcasts, syndicated AV, supporting learning at scale, being used properly across higher education institutions. We had ITAs, the Intelligent Teaching Assistant. Yeah, to help teachers not replace them, but by taking out a lot of the grunt work of just mixing ideas and pulling them into a coherent whole. And finally, we had next generation digital learning environments. Just trips off the tongue, doesn't it? Which is why, uh, which is why I go for it. Yes, and uh, so NGDLEs is all about that lovely blurred boundary between learning and teaching and um, how technology can augment that. Okay, so we've talked about um, EdTech that wasn't and EdTech that was. In the third and final episode of Where's My Hoverboard, uh, we're going to be poking our way through the OU Innovating Pedagogy Report uh, for our favourite scraps. So thanks very much for listening. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also get to us via pedagodzilla.com. If you want to lambast us for our um, frankly hate-filled views, uh, you can reach me on Twitter at pedagodzilla. Or you can get to me at Mark Childs. You can get to me at Liz underscore Isabella. We hope you enjoyed listening and we'll see you next time on Pedagodzilla. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye.